everybody, future primitive listeners. I'm on the phone today with Eric Herm. Eric Herm was raised on a cotton farm near Ackerley, Texas. He graduated from Abilene Christian University with a degree in broadcast journalism. After working in sports television broadcasting, he traveled extensively. Having broadened his mind, Hearn eventually returned to Texas to work the land that has been in his family for almost a hundred years. I could go on, but what I'd like to say is that Eric Herm has written a book called Son of a Farmer, Child of the Earth, a path to agriculture's higher consciousness. And also, right off the bat, I want to say that you can visit Eric's website at www.sono, S-O-N-O, fa, farmer, F-A, F-A-R, M-E-R, dot com. Sonofafarmer, dot com. Sonofafarmer being just one word. So, um, hi, Eric. Is there anything that I left out in your introduction that you'd like to add? Oh, no. That was perfect. Thank you. Okay. Well, it occurred to me that um, I'd like to start with a quote from your book. In the beginning of your book, you say, everything begins and ends with seeds. Would you like to talk about that? Well, right now in agriculture, we're being faced with a a huge dilemma that's, in my opinion, not just an environmental issue. It's a human health issue. It's really a moral issue. Uh, when it gets down to it with uh, genetically modified organisms or or seeds. And uh, a lot of our indigenous seeds are in peril because uh, farmers are going the easier route of of planting uh, these genetically modified crops. And uh, slowly but surely, most of our natural indigenous seeds are becoming uh, less common. And in many cases, most of these corporations are no longer offering a lot of the seed varieties we've seen in years past that were successful uh, because there's so much more money in the genetically modified crops because they charge you for their patents on these on these seeds. And yet, for instance, um, as Vandana Shiva has said, in India, many farmers have committed suicide because they couldn't pay for the seed. So, can you give us the rate? What's the what is the money difference between a natural seed and a GMO seed? Well, with the natural seed, we're we'll plant a certified seed, which basically is you know an, an heirloom type of seed and, and cotton. I'll, I'll be speaking most about cotton because that's what we grow. Of course. But it's the same with all these other commodity crops. Um, you know, it'll cost us by the time we the land can save our seed and catch it for the next season and bag it. We're looking around twenty to twenty-five dollars per bag. Mm-hmm. Uh, but with Monsanto. 
is these companies, they charge, and that's for a 50-pound bag. So you're looking at $20, $25 for a 50-pound bag. They end up charging, depending on the type of the type of genetics that are involved, there's three different levels. But you're looking at anywhere between $200 to $350 for a 50-pound bag. Wow. That's just amazing. So, Eric, um, tell us what is so wrong about genetically engineered seed. Oh, wow. Where could I start? From the First of all, you've got basically four corporations uh, dominating the market, and they're controlling not just the seed supply for farmers, you're looking at these companies are controlling our food markets globally. And this is not just in the United States, we're talking global global scale here. Um, when the farmer puts the power into these companies' hands by buying that type of seed, we're giving them all the power, all, all the rights, all the profits. So they also have huge, huge, uh, let's see, they have a huge voice in D.C. first and foremost with campaign, uh, campaign contributions, with even help setting uh, legislation. You've got Monsanto employees that rotate in and out of the FDA, the U.S., well, not so much the USDA, but the FDA uh, and other levels throughout uh, our higher office, like uh, the Secretary of Agriculture, uh, Tom Vilsack, he has huge ties with these companies. Uh, Michael Taylor, who is uh, President Obama's key advisor in agriculture, and he has been a Monsanto higher up and an employee back in the 90s and uh, an attorney. Clarence Thomas, our Justice Supreme Court, was a legal defense attorney for Monsanto in the late 80s. And that's really when Monsanto began to get their their uh, foot in D.C. was in the late 80s, early 90s with with genetics, uh, genetic engineering, and uh, basically setting the precedence and not having any really set standards of uh, of oversight on these on these organisms, and it's into got into the marketplace without hardly any testing involved on humans or. And it's been going into our food system now for almost 20 years. And uh, that's, that's where it's really affecting everybody as a whole, but it's affecting the farmer because of economics. It's affecting the landscape because there's so much more herbicides used now instead of uh, cultivation or plowing. Farmers are using uh, these herbicides over and over and over and over. And uh, you're looking at erosion issues, you're looking at uh, just air, soil, and water issues with the pollution from these chemicals. Uh, it's really a snowball. I mean, you go on and on about the, the different studies that have been linked to genetically modified crops and uh, how it uh, causes lesions in animals' uh, stomachs. Uh, when in tests done, given a choice between genetically modified plants or seed, yes. 10 times out of 10, they won't even touch the genetically modified. They just go to the natural uh, food source. Right. But we're forcing 
issues because we're not giving them a choice. You look at corn, cotton, soybeans, and canola, mm-hmm. and all those crops are between 80 and 91% genetically modified. And how does this affect humans? Have there been any health studies about how genetically modified um, products affect humans? They're, they're, they're doing more, and a really good source for that is seedsofdeception.com. Okay. Jeffrey Smith, he's written several books on uh, the health issues of genetically modified uh, crops or organisms. Um, and the test, more of this has been done out of India or where they handle everything by hand. There seem to be more health uh, reports in those countries because they're they're in it, you know, where here we basically handle everything by machine, so we're detached from it just a little bit. But you're looking at more skin allergies, uh, you know, where they're just constant itching. Uh, you, like I said in the studies, where they uh, cause lesions in different animals. There was also a high fatality rate when they, when they graze sheep on the genetically modified crops, within three months, I believe, they said it was basically a 100% mortality rate wow. that their sheep or their cattle would die if they would certainly become sick in the first 48 hours. Okay. And uh, for whatever reasons, they're not really sure that the plant itself proves more toxic than uh, the seed does. And that's because they say when you start with this genetic engineering, it's extremely unpredictable. It can go, it's like tying a firecracker to a to an animal, you know, and lighting on fire. You just don't know which direction it's going to go. Right. It's producing right. other things. When it goes off, it may produce a certain uh, chemical that uh, has been known to cause other diseases. It just... It's still really unknown. We're basically guinea pigs right now. Exactly. So, tell us, Eric Herm, what happened for you that you decided to write a book? I mean, a book is a big endeavor, and you are a cotton farmer. Tell us about that. Well, I just, I saw the way things were. I left the farm. Uh, was gone for about a decade because uh, when I was younger, this just wasn't really where I wanted to be or what I wanted to do. And uh, when I moved back, I really had to play catch up because I'd been gone and uh, trying to figure out how things worked, why we did everything a certain way. And it seemed like in a lot of manners, the farmer's hands were tied. And uh, I really never been one to accept a set standard for what it was. I always had to dig deeper and, and find out. And when I first moved back, we planted uh, these Roundup Ready crops. That's what we call them because mm-hmm. you're able to spray this herbicide on these plants mm-hmm. uh, without them dying. Uh, the genetically modified crops, we planted them their first two years, which without me doing any research or studying. And then once I got into finding out what I was doing, or what I was planning, I was just like, I could not sleep at night. And I was constantly doing more research and trying to disprove myself, saying, no, this can't be right, this can't be right. Mm-hmm. And uh, the more I more I find out, 
the more outraged I became and nobody would really listen to me around here and so I just channeled that aggression or that energy into my writing and uh, what turned out from a, a from a small article turned into you know 200 plus pages for this book okay okay now you've been planting seeds without um, Roundup herbicide you have been planting natural crops yes and are you uh, the only one around in your area? We're one of the very few. I know that um, it's, it's, uh, it's growing instead of uh, decimating. You know, you'll, you'll see a farmer here and there who will plant the, the indigenous seeds or the conventional seeds, but yeah, I'd say the 80, I think cotton is now up to 88% genetically modified across the country, and I'd say that figure holds pretty steady with our area. Okay, okay. So how is your relationship uh, with your neighbors? Uh, do they see you as odd, or...? Yeah. <laughs> they do? Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the odd one because I feel this way. Um, it's, uh, it's quite ironic. Uh, you know, I've gotten into a couple instances with, with neighbors where uh, one in particular where the herbicide drifted and killed my garden, you know, and uh, that uh, definitely got my blood boiling. And But people around me know how I feel about it, and, you know, it's caused a little bit of a rift between my father and I because we, we we're also business partners, and uh, he, he didn't really understand my my reasonings whenever I took a stand and refused to, to plant these uh, these seeds ever again. Mm -hmm. But uh, he's he's uh, he's understanding now. He's come around. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you say that now people put more value on money than food, and uh, it seems like that that idea is. Uh, is a cancerous idea in many ways. Could you speak about that? Well, I think everything in agriculture is looked at with um, with goggles, you know, with the dollar bill as a filter on these lenses. Uh, you know, a, a farmer will, most farmers will look at it, anything he's got to do to survive for this year because, it, you know, it's a, an industry that is very vulnerable. I mean, you can really get yourself into trouble in, in just one or two years and be out, be bankrupt or be out of business before you know what's going on because the system is so rigged for failure. And so we've unfortunately gotten into this series of one-year plans, you know, on the, on the farm instead of a long-term projection of, of doing what's best for the soil or the earth or the environment in general. It's just about what you can do to make the most money that particular year. Mm -hmm. And these crops have allowed farmers to cut back on fuel, labor, uh, and wear and tear on equipment. So it's easier if you look at it on a one-year term basis. But um, if you look at it over, say, a decade, you're not counting for the excess amount of poison you're putting into the soil, you're decimating the life in your soil, 
and by planting these same crops over and over and over we are not replenishing the proper minerals and, and vitamins and everything else that needs to go into the earth so that it can be returned into our, our food. So would you say that agriculture is coming to um, a dead end? I, I do. I'm afraid that it's, um, you know, it's on the on the downward slide. You look at the the figures, we have less than a million farmers now in this country. And we're so dependent on, on fossil fuels, on, on these big, huge machines, and I just don't see how that's going to be feasible in another 10 or 15 years or whenever that day comes when, you know, oil gets back to the point. Uh, you know, if oil ever gets back to $150 a barrel like it did back in 2007, yeah. it's going to put a lot of people out of business. And uh, to me, one of the main ways that we can ensure or secure a future with agriculture is to become less dependent on these chemicals and particularly the genetically modified crops. So, Eric, uh, a personal question. By not complying with uh, the corporations, Monsanto, Bayer, how are you surviving? Here we are. This this year's crop will probably be the second highest yield our family farm has ever had, ever. And that's without any genetically modified crops. That's with no pesticides. That's with no commercial fertilizers, all organic fertilizers. And uh, and we didn't even get any rain really from the Fourth of July till about the middle of August on most of our fields, or in some cases the first of September. Mm -hmm. What about the bees? Does this do these uh, genetically modified uh, and pesticides affect the bees? It, it, it almost has to. I mean, there's you look at the you know colony collapse disorder that's pretty much been reported worldwide here over the last few years. That and there's a part of that in my book. Talk a little bit about the the honeybees, mm -hmm. but. hearing is that um, you have uh, great compassion for the ecosystem, for
for the earth. How did that happen for you? Uh, it was just a growth. I think it was just a, an internal growth. It wasn't um, really something I was taught or, or always had. It just came over time. Um, just being more aware of, of what's around me and how everything in life or in nature works. You know, we're all dependent on so many other different aspects of, uh, you know, in the, in the chain or however you want to, whatever analogy you want to use mm -hmm. in, in life. But just because we are, you know, we're the ones driving these tractors or living in houses, we can't look at ourselves as the kings or the queens or the, the rulers of the world. To me, we're just a one one significant part of it you know we're not the whole part uh, you know I need all these insects I need uh, I need birds I need uh, so many different other you know millions of tiny creatures that I'll never even know the name of I need them around just because that's how it's always been that's how it needs to work and um, you know we're all an extension of each other and uh, I just look at the whole world as one huge living organism and each one of us has different uh, duties or functions. Right, right. Eric, would you like to speak about hemp? You have a, you have a very interesting uh, part in your book about hemp and uh, the difference between hemp and plastic. You know, if you do uh, the history research on hemp and for thousands of years, whether it's to make rope or cells or, or clothing, and then <laughs> typical American corporation uh, situation where um, we're able to convince the American people or our government or enough people that this this plan is so evil, so monstrous that we have to extinguish it, you know, or or get it out of our get it out of Mother Nature. It's um uh, it's comical. It's sad but it's comical that how the propaganda was set up like that when the you know, in nineteen thirty seven when they pushed that through with the illegalization of marijuana and hemp. Uh, but it, to me, it's one of the most valuable plants on the planet because it's so diverse and can do so many things. You know, I've spoken in the book about Henry Ford making a line of cars out of hemp in the 1940s. And, uh, you know, where you could actually even use hemp oil to help fuel those cars. Uh, I think the possibilities with hemp are endless. So do you think that... Um how could the DuPont family override the Ford people? That's a good question. Yeah. Yeah. You know, to to figure out how politics works even these days, I can't uh, begin to imagine. I guess it's just who you know and where you are. But you know, the fact that what the DuPonts were able to pull off is mind-boggling to me. That they were really able to create a billion-dollar business from the legalization of, of hemp because they usher in nylon and all these other hundreds of little plastic products after hemp was out of the scene. And the fact that uh, DuPont was appointed the, 
you know, the uh, czar of the drug czar under the Nixon right. administration is, is just really a slap in the face of American agriculture or the American people, in, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you said something... Um You quoted something very interesting in your book. You quoted Jefferson as saying that democracy is like two wolves and a lamb deciding what they're going to have for lunch. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Uh, could you expand on that? Because some people might be shocked uh, because... Uh, you know, wanting to defend uh, democracy and not falling into other extremes. Could you expand on your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think, well, I mean, democracy was one of the types of government that our founding fathers were trying to get away from, you know, and it's, it's shameful that, uh, you know, a lot of us think that that's, America was set up as a democracy or that's the way it was intended. It was not, you know, it was supposed to be a republic. And the fact of, um, I think another quote that might have been in there, and I think it's from uh, Benjamin Franklin, where basically democracy is a way for 51% of the people to take away the rights of 49%. Um, I just don't think that's the way it's intended. I don't think you can set up that type of government and um, insist on it working for 300 million people when uh, you're living in totally different regions and totally different uh, climates. And uh, I think that's why you see a lot of issues like the hemp and marijuana that comes out of someplace like California where they're, they're successfully... Uh, you know, legalizing it with uh, medicinal marijuana or, you know, hemp is such a <laughs> such a safe plant. You know, most people think that you can smoke hemp and get high off of it. That's how successful that they've been in, in really brainstorming yeah. uh, the public. But, I mean, back to the, the politics of the government, I just, I just don't see... The, democracy working well in this country. I don't think it has worked well for quite some time. And when they ushered it in, you know, after the Civil War, basically, uh, I just think it's uh, been a slow ride in a southern direction. And uh, I don't mean that geographically, I just mean it's gone downhill. Uh, and I just think there's got to be some radical changes because there's so It's obvious so many of our systems are broken and, and government's right at the top of that list. So, um, do you have people around you who uh, believe in the same things? As far as environmentally or... The, or well, let's say environmentally, yes. Politically? Well, environmentally, yes. Oh, environmentally? Yes. Here, it's... Uh, few and far between. I think that I, I'll get more... Older wives tend to, like farmers' wives, tend to agree. Like if I'm having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with them, they'll agree with me because they, they've been around and their ego is not involved. Like, say that their husband is that's been out there working the fields. and um, I think that I tend to have more in common with older people like my granddad's 87 years old and he and I agree on a lot more things than mm -hmm. I will with farmers my age or 
even uh, my dad's age. Right. But I think it's because they see chemicals working on the surface, and we're just trained to pretty much treat uh, treat our problems cosmetically, and we're not really getting to the root of the problem. So a long time ago, when uh, one night you were with your your friends in college, and you had this idea, let's create our own town. Yeah. yeah, that's wonderful, where everybody would have a purpose for one another and for each other. And uh, so I'm moving into solution here. Uh, tribal living, Eric, speak about that. Well, I think that we've really gotten away from a sense of community in a lot of a lot of ways and um, if you can if you're able to surround yourself with friends and family and loved ones and you know just like I wrote in the book like if you have someone who's a mechanic or someone who's a carpenter or someone who's a farmer or someone who's a, a healer or a, you know a doctor or a massage therapist a chiropractor or, you know welder all these different trades and, and different skills that we have, I mean, you you don't really need to buy a lot. You can barter with one another. You can help one another and create your own world, create your own, your own place in the universe and not have to buy into this system of, oh, let me go buy a $200,000 uh, house and pay off this mortgage for 40 years after I pay off this, you know, $80,000 your life in this prison of debt, you know, I just think we've complicated life by tying ourselves down financially to all these uh, constraints, and really, if we could get back to simplifying it, and that's, you know, I try to tell my nephews and my nieces that are teenagers right now, it's like, you know, don't buy into the system that every, what everybody else is doing, you know, create your own world. You know, don't don't try to follow this set standard because it's not working no matter what somebody tells you. Well, this website is called Future Primitive, and uh, I was wondering if uh, you thought that uh, we would go back to a hunter-gatherer society. I think I think we'll have to in a lot of areas, and uh, you know, where population is so. So dense, I, I don't know. I I get kind of, um, after a day or two in the city, that's about enough for me. So I have to kind of be in a wilderness or out in the country where I can uh, be surrounded by nature. I think that, you know, we're going to have to be less dependent on consumerism. We're going to have to be, if you're not able to create a, an environment around you, Like, I've been really focusing on planting fruit trees and, and everything where we can sustain ourselves right here at the house and not have to drive 20 miles to, you know, to buy $10 worth of fruit or vegetables. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think in each region, depending on what, what's around you, it's going to be different. But, yeah, I think it's certainly the hunter-gatherer. I think that's in our near future when you look at the, our depletion of, uh, of resources. But what about the people who 
live in the cities? What about the people who don't? Like your family has owned land for generations. What about the people who don't own land? I don't think you have to own land or to really survive in the future. I th but I think that's why it's so critical, so vital for people to be uh, building these communities where they are right now, you know, whether it's your neighbors or, or friends or family or whatever, you need to be creating something that's going to be able to work, you know, just pretend like, hey, how would I be able to live if I didn't have gas in my car, if I didn't, I didn't have to drive 20 or 30 miles on a daily basis? I think we really need to start changing the way we think about all of our daily habits. And if you're able to to put that in your mind, say, how would I live without easy access to all the gas or diesel I needed, you know, like we basically do today? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think you need to get that first and foremost and then start with simple things, you know, securing healthy water through harvesting rainwater, um, you know, by planting a little small garden. It doesn't take a lot of space to feed a family of three or four people. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of different methods, but we need to start implementing them now and not wait. You know, you don't, the old saying, you don't, you don't dig for a water well once you get thirsty. You right. know, you go ahead and dig that well before you get thirsty so it's there once you get thirsty. Right, right. But isn't most of the, the land, and that sounds so strange to me, isn't most of the land around us bought or sold? So what can we do about that? I mean, that's a good question. How can you plant on a, on other people's <laughs> land? Think about how how everyone's going to be able to have their little piece of land or or not. Um, you know, one part that I bring up is that if there's a uh, a spare lot or say you live in a big city and there's a vacant lot, you yes. know, you can pull together different resources or create a, uh, a co-op or a small business or corporation with you and several people where you're able to buy that little lot there and then create your garden there. Uh, I mean, there's a hundred different ways I guess we could go about it. It's just a matter of, of thinking what to, about these issues now and dealing with them instead of, of waiting. But, uh, Let's uh, speak about um, seed banks. Okay. That, that is one good way of um, surviving outside of the corporations. Yes. Yeah, I think um, most people think you have to go buy your seeds year after year after year, but, you know, if you garden and you have your own heirloom seed that you start out with, you know, set aside uh, a couple of plants each year, each season, and, you know, put a little barrier or flag it, however you need to, to mark it, but you, you save seeds from, from uh, one or two plants or however many plants you need to have enough seed to start the next year of growth, or I like to keep about two to three growing seasons worth of seed on hand just because of droughts or any other things from Mother Nature that may come in, but, you know, seeds are, 
seeds are everything. I mean, that's our source of life outside of water. And uh, to me, if you can secure your water and a healthy supply of seeds, you're definitely on your way towards a, an independent and healthy life. So if you have uh, seeds and you have water, you're richer than a CEO. There you go. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Eric, is there any, anything that's on your mind these days that you'd like to talk about? Oh, man. These days, you know, to me, it's like everything that's going on in the world. Um, I think we're, you know, we're really at a time and place uh, where we kind of come to this realization that uh, we've been lied to, whether it's from government, these corporations, uh, you know, we've got a lot of um, issues going on, just like the BP will still work, where we're not, we're not getting the real answers as to when things happen, like why they happened, but, you know, we, we kind of have to really, we have to re-examine how we're living. Uh, if it's not efficient, if it's not in harmony with nature, if it's not promoting or or prolonging what's around us, I mean, we really have to question why we are not living that way. Mm-hmm. And we're just, we're doing nothing but exhausting our resources uh, for future generations. And it's not, it's not just a, it's not just an environmental issue. And I, I think people are, I get too caught up in like the whole climate change, is it global warming or, or whatever, that doesn't matter. What, what matters is that we need to change the way we're living, the way we're going about our daily lives. And so long as money is our main goal or our main focus, we're not going to change it. It's going to be too late by then. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have to centralize our thoughts on happiness, on love, and doing that, we have to involve nature and not exclude her. We can't go through living or our work like some uh, manufacturer or miner of the earth. You know, we need to be really thoughtful. We need to be extremely conscious of what we're doing and why. And to me, if you if you really put a lot of thought, a lot of energy, and a lot of time. You know, we can solve we can solve these problems, but we can't solve them if we're trying to use the same methods or prolong what we've been doing for the last sixty or seventy years. What does love mean to you, Eric? You mention love in your book. What does it mean to you? How can we change things through love? To me, um, you know, being selfless, being um, being completely free from fear. Um, I think a lot of times we're motivated by what we're fearful of. And to me, when whenever whenever love leads the way, you know, you basically surrendered your true self. You've um, you really let go. You know, I talk about you know freedom being that that fall into the hole, you know, it's, it, as long as you think you're falling or you're, you're, 
you're afraid of the fact that you're going down this direction and you, you don't, uh, you're not really getting it. You know, it's really when you just kind of surrender and realize that you're just flying and, uh, and enjoying that, enjoying life or enjoying the moment. Uh, that's what it is. But to me, it's like embracing everything, everyone, uh, and seeing yourself as just really an extension of everything or everything an extension of yourself. So do you feel you're living that way? I feel like I'm straddling two worlds right now is what I could feel. Because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm still, I'm still living in this, uh, the economic side, you know, providing for my family, having jobs, making tractor payments, uh, making payments on automobiles and, and things like that, you know, and I'm, I've got the other leg and the other world in the direction that I feel like I want to go, that I need to go, and where the world is headed. And so I, I catch myself kind of um, straddling that fence and being torn in, in two directions, but I'm also seeking balance because I don't want to just um, completely throw away everything I've known just yet. <laughs> You know, if I just stay here and live with my family, you know, like Amish or, or you know, don't use any fuel whatsoever, uh, I don't feel that we would fare well, but I'm basically trying to wean myself off of uh, this past uh, standard of living, okay. and, and it's going to take time, and, I, and that's what I have to remind myself, that I can't just do this overnight. It's going to take a lot of work, and it's going to take a lot of patience and perseverance. Um, but yeah, I feel like I'm definitely in two different worlds a lot of the time. Good, good. Is there something you'd like to say in closing? Uh, perhaps the, um, the, the subtitle of your book is A Path to Agriculture's higher consciousness. Perhaps you'd like to say something about agriculture's higher consciousness in closing. Well, I think everything has been motivated, uh, like I said, by money first and foremost, but we've allowed corporations We've allowed them to set the standard. Mm-hmm. We've allowed their profits, uh, you know, their stocks and everything that's involved with their economics to dictate how we farm, not only how we farm, but how we live. Mm-hmm. And I think that we, we need to be the ones who step up. We need to be the leaders that is needed in the world today. If we're going to continue to sit by and pretend that government or corporations or whomever, you know, has all the money or that they're the ones in control or they're the ones with all the power and we can't change things, then things won't change. If we really dig down deep and examine who we are, who we want to be and what we should do, uh, we're getting in touch with that higher consciousness we're getting in touch with the way things 
need to be, the way things have to be for this planet to progress, for us to evolve in a positive manner instead of just trying to get out of here as, with as much money as possible. You know, that's almost like the goal. Let's get as money, just make as much money as I can before I got to retire. I mean, you know, it's all nonsense. I mean, to me, <laughs> we have to really do spend more time, energy, everything that's in, that we have inside us of, of removing the smoke screens and all the mirrors that's been placed before us. You know, it's, I love the quote, it takes a decade of truth to make up for a hundred years worth of lies. And I think that that's where we are right now, but we can't sit around and wait another decade to get things right. Okay. And I think it starts within. It's got to be awakening within. And once that awakening happens, then your actions and your reactions will uh, help steer in that right direction. Thank you, Eric Herm. Uh, thank you for writing your book, Son of a Farmer, Child of the Earth. It's published by Dream River Press. Yes. Okay. Yes. Thank you very much for having me. Enjoyed it. You're so welcome. Future Primitive is made possible by the Marion Institute. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider supporting our work by making your own tax-deductible contribution online at futureprimitive.org. Dot org.